Welcome to Scottish Farm Advisory Service Podcast. You can find out more about FARS on our website, www.fars.scot, or if you need advice, then call our helpline on 0300 323 0161. Welcome. My name is Jeanette Sutherland, and I'm delighted that we have farmer, naturalist and author Patrick Laurie with us today. Patrick, your book Native is subtitled Life in a Vanishing Landscape. And what we want to focus on in this podcast is the disappearance of cropping in much of the livestock areas of Scotland. And we'd like to discuss why you think it's important for people and for nature that we bring cropping back. We will hear excerpts from your book and then we will discuss the themes raised. Patrick, do you want to introduce yourself and maybe explain some of the many hats that you wear? Yeah, sure. Um, So my name's Patrick Laurie. I was born and brought up in, in Galloway, right far southwest corner of Scotland. I have done lots of work on um, wildlife and conservation in agriculture over the last probably 10, 12 years. Uh, I started off working with uh, the Heather Trust uh, in Dumfries, um, traveling across, well, Heather Trust got a remit to travel across the entire of Britain. So I was working on moorland management issues from sort of Exmoor to, to Shetland, um, trying to get people to, to, to think differently about um, integrating different land uses into moorland management systems. Uh, I then went to work for Soil Association, running a Farming with Nature program um, with Soil Association. Uh, at the same time, I worked with and continue to work with uh, the Working for Waders project, which is a big sort of collaborative project involving lots of different partners across Scotland, trying to get people all pushing in the same direction. It's frustrating quite often when you see really good projects, really good work going on for wader conservation across Scotland. And actually, people in one part of Scotland don't even know the work that's going on in other parts of Scotland. So that's one of the remits of working for waders is to make sure for a start that people aren't doing like people aren't doubling up um, and, and and doing the same work in different places, but also trying to get people talking and get people communicating more about waders. So within that too, I also um, about six or seven years ago, I got into to Galloway cattle and started a, a farming business here in Galloway. I've now got this year, things have really, really expanded i've now got about 250 270 acres of, of, of hill grazing um with 27 pedigree rigget galloway cattle um and so that takes up an awful lot of my my time as probably you can imagine i also do advisory work for estates and farms across the country and i find my time is pretty full goodness and in that time you've also managed to write a book yeah so the book came out in april and i don't know the book um, was an interesting project. I started off trying to write about um, wader conservation and, and trying to get down to some of the nitty gritty stuff that really mattered to me. I, I mean, I'm, I'm obsessed with curlews. I've got a, a big interest in curlews in Galloway. They're doing really badly in Galloway. And actually, I think probably we're now looking at the last 10, 12 years, we've pretty much lost most of our breeding curlews here. And in another 10, 12 years, we, we will have lost all of them. Um, so I, the book was a bit of a response to that, but at the same time, I'm not a scientist. Um, I have no sort of formal scientific training in, in any of this conservation work. So what I tried to do with the book was basically write or, or represent what it's like if you're actually you're on the ground looking at this, watching this happening in real time. Because I was feeling that while there was lots of great scientific studies and lots of information coming out about curlews and 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 how to how to protect them, there wasn't really a sort of a corresponding sort of dialogue going on with the people on the ground the kind of people who are actually trying to trying to deliver a lot of this science um and i suppose in some ways too it's frustrating when you see studies coming out and interesting bits and pieces of information coming out of uh, from the scientists from the ecologists quite often they come out with recommendations that say well you need to do x y or z and and quite often those those ideas haven't really been ground truth so it was quite nice to be able to take some of that research and say yeah certain parts of it are great but actually what you're suggesting there is impractical and maybe it might work better if we twisted it and put it back in a different order to make it more like i'm always just keen to make sure that, that the science and the evidence that we're producing actually actually fits actually works on the ground actually make sure that it's not a it's not a pain it's not a hassle and for the, so really trying to integrate conservation into agriculture so that's really that's really my my that's become my real focus and i think the book is maybe a bit of a, a, a response to that no, that's fantastic. And I think you're right. There's a real issue that if people just stay within their own little tribes, then the wider uh, lessons can get lost because um, sometimes often people can be speaking about the same thing, but they use different language. And it's I think that's one of the key aspects that working from waders is trying to bridge a wee bit. Yeah, no, I, I, I hope so. I think it's a really exciting project, but it's 
it's difficult because a lot of the partners, uh, with great respect to all the partners, um, a lot of the partners, the traditional model of conservation is kind of you raise funds to do a particular project and then you kind of just almost like put up shutters around that project and you make that into your territory, your little your little pet study area. Um, and actually then communication between organizations has, has, hasn't been great over the last yeah, 10, 20 years. So um, working for waders, one of the real challenges is getting people to, to kind of drop that old fashioned model and actually realize that if X partner is doing this piece of work, then actually it might be really good to complement that by doing something in relation to it. And I suppose sometimes I've, I've been speaking to researchers and scientists and I just casually mention a piece of, piece of research that's happening in Aberdeenshire and somebody in Lanarkshire says, oh, I didn't even know that was happening. And then it's in a way, it's really satisfying to then be able to give contact details. And then two researchers who are working on almost exactly the same thing can then just go just go straight in and, and, and quite a high level conversation and then really get benefit out of it, which I don't know, in some ways being naive about it, in some ways, I'm, I, I'm always a little bit surprised this kind of work hasn't already been happening. So I think, yeah, it's a really valuable piece of work. It's an exciting piece of work. Excellent. Would you like to read a wee bit from your book? Sure. So one of the things that I was interested in looking at when I took on a piece of ground in, in Galloway, Galloway's now increasingly become kind of diverging. We used to be uh, quite a sort of a slow, rather laid back agricultural corner of Scotland. And in the last 25, 30 years, we've or perhaps even more than that, 40, 50 years, we, we've really diverged in terms of our land use. We've really intensified into commercial forestry. Uh, and we've really intensified on the low ground into dairy. So Galloway now produces just over half of Scotland's milk. Um, and that, that's a lot of dairy production to come from quite a small area of the country. Okay. So on the hill ground, we've got a huge amount of um, commercial softwood plantations. And on the low ground, we've got very, very intensive grassland management. So the piece of ground that I took on, so, I mean, I'm looking out of my office window at the moment, and probably for about five, six miles up the glen, all I can see is a fairly uniform green of improved grassland. And so taking on some of my own land, it's only a small area, but uh, I was really interested to kind of break up that uniformity. We've got, as I say, if as far as the eye can see is green, I kind of wanted to introduce some different colours and different textures into that. So in the first year, this was four years ago, um, I decided to kind of break with continuity and um, put in a, a, a field of oats. And everybody had told me, I'd heard sort of anecdotally, lots of farmers saying, oh, well, cereal crops are just fantastic for wildlife, just just the best thing you can do. Um, but around here, there's very little in terms of cereal crop. I mean, people do a little bit of spring barley in a good year. There's actually a relatively high amount of spring barley this year. But actually, the cereal crops that there are are very few and far between. Uh, quite a lot of them go straight into, we've got biodigesters now. So quite a lot of it's going sort of as whole crop into biodigesters. Um, it's not getting to sort of full maturity. We're not getting the full wildlife benefits. So what I wanted to do was basically turn the clock back and and, and do some sort of small scale cropping. Um, so the oats were yeah a bit of a step into the unknown. So from the book, I'd chosen to grow oats in my first year. A cereal crop seemed to fit the new rotation and I was drawn to the rush and bustle of a breeze through heavy seeds. We've been growing oats in Galloway for as long as anybody can remember and this crop is a landmark for the people of Scotland, but I'd never seen a field of oats, and the decision was an act of faith. I think probably it's quite hard to overestimate the fact that in terms of the sort of the culture, the tradition of, of traditional mixed farming here, it, ha it really has absolutely vanished, and in very, very short order. I mean, it, this is my father's generation would have would have known oats and turnips um, as part of the landscape. And actually, I've been brought up. I really hadn't. I really, honestly, hadn't seen. I've never seen a field of oats, and I didn't really know. Didn't really know what I was doing. So, yeah, to me, it was a. It was. It was. It was quite a departure. And um, particularly aside from anything, getting hold of some of the machinery, getting hold of the actual equipment required to do this work. When I looked about to get a plow, I couldn't get one. When I looked about to get even basic um, equipment to do this kind of work, it's not not really here anymore. Um, so I had to, yeah, look quite far afield to, to start gathering in the pieces that I needed to, to do this work. How did your first year of this venture of faith go? It was great. So we've got lots of, there's lots of big agricultural contractors around here. Um, and they're all kitted out to do big scale work, like big sort of um, heavy industrial stuff. The field that I've got, I've got a logistical issue with the field, the, the field that I wanted to, to work because it's got an eight foot gateway. Um, and <laughs> each of the gate posts uh, is a granite slab, probably weighing just over a ton. Oh, um, wow. The, the idea of 
I mean, the, I had a contractor come and he said, oh, you're going to have to move those gateposts. And I was like, well, you move them. <laughs> like, I, I, I can't move them. So, um, and also to get to the farm, uh, you have to go over a bridge, which I can tell you is nine foot six wide. The bridge is nine foot six wide. And I know that because my hay baler is nine foot five wide. It would have been easy. I suppose it probably would have been easy to pick up the phone and get contractors to come and do the work. But actually, I couldn't find a contractor who um, had machinery small enough to do it. I literally, it, it simply wasn't, it was, it was a non-starter. So the first step when you say, um, how did it go? The first step actually was getting hold of all the kit. I ended up getting uh, a smallish tractor, uh, 1978 uh, David Brown um, tractor. Um, I then needed to get a plow, then got cultivators, and then got disc harrows, and then got Vicon berry spreader, um, wagtail spreader. I had to get a field roller that was uh, that was under eight feet, which in itself was a difficulty. As soon as the crop was in, stuff started to happen almost immediately. Things looked different. I mean, even within 48, 72 hours of, of, of plowing, we had lapwings in the field. Um, everybody knows, I think, that lapwings um, love early plantings and bare soil, but um, lapwings here, lapwings probably here were gone 10, 15 years ago, and they just don't come here anymore. So even my neighbours were, my neighbours, I suppose, must confess, they did laugh at what I was trying to do. <laughs> it, it, it seemed to be such a ridiculous project. But to get such a quick response from wildlife, they immediately said, oh, actually, fine, perhaps they wouldn't, they wouldn't want to copy what I was doing, but they could immediately see that what I was doing kind of was working for me. Mm-hmm. so uh the crop grew, the crop grew fine all summer actually came on really well it was quite a dry year that year so the crop ripened quite early and then i sort of had to deal with the idea of actually harvesting it which in itself was was a was a was a, a major handful i had a a, a would be a, about a five foot bar maybe a five and a half foot bar massey ferguson reaper which uh yeah made for very slow progress harvesting it each time you got to the end of a pass you then had to get out walk back tie everything by hand into sheaves and then stack the sheaves into stooks and get everything settled by hand that took a huge amount of work it's really hard to overstate how much work that was and I had lots of friends come down um, from Glasgow and Edinburgh to give me a hand with that it was incredibly labor intensive but at the same time when I had people who knew their business about cereal crops they came along and said well so what are you planning to treat um, your cereals with um, in order to get them get, to get it stored actually in, and they were talking in terms of like um, cereal preservatives like like a, a prop corn or, or, or some kind of spray they didn't need anything actually that the process of cutting those sheaves and stacking them and making them into stooks did such a beautiful job of drying them that when it time came to actually thresh the crop which again we did by hand um, wow. it went into it went straight into bins and, and nothing spoiled at all. It was it was very crisp, very dry, very workable stuff. Immediately, as soon as the crop was down, um, so when the crop had risen, we had an awful lot of hares. We had um, a few small interesting birds sort of made use of the crop. We had a good, It happened to be a good year for wild pheasants anyway, so we had good wild pheasants in about the crop. But as soon as the crop was down, it was extraordinary, the the particularly finches and what you probably call originally traditional farmland birds just absolutely flocked into it. So we finished actually bringing the crop in about the middle of September. And from September through to November was it was almost ridiculous, the quantity of birds we had on the place. And, and from going from having had very few yellowhammers around, we had an awful lot of yellowhammers, uh, linnets and redpolls and lots of, I suppose, probably birds that Birds I didn't even know were here. I'm not even sure necessarily how they found it, but, but they, <laughs> they, they 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 absolutely swarmed around the place. And at the same time, it was it was it, it was good for it was good for everything. I was I was really astonished by it. But at the same time, I was really keen to knowing that there are um, subsidy options for sacrificial crops and planting crops and letting them effectively leaving them for the birds. I was always a bit jaded by that. I always I kind of wanted. The crop that I was producing to, to pay its way to serve a function so I brought in about half of the crop went in straight into bins and then I got hold of a bruiser and then I turned it into oatmeal which then kept the bull over the winter and that was more than enough to keep the bull and two followers and two um, steers fattened really nicely on that crop but um, the rest of it I just fed straight to sheep so I fed the whole the whole stem um, the, the Galloways ended up eating all the straw all the heads all the everything and that really sustained, really prolonged the benefit of uh, of the oat crop um, because I get I get the feeling that the birds hammered the crop so early in the season that almost they ate themselves they ate themselves to a standstill. There was almost nothing left. 
So by then um, putting cattle onto the stubble over the winter and feeding them sheaves, the birds continued to get benefit out of that. It was almost like um, almost like just sort of stretching the value of the crop right the way through to March, April the following year. And it was interesting too that in terms of cowpats, um, when they're eating the whole cereal, there was an awful lot of oats coming through undigested, which then was great for for partridges and pheasants that were then picking through the cowpats and actually picking out the picking out the the, the oats that were left. So. I don't know, probably that's a, that's a long way around of, of, of explaining how it went, but it was really, really staggering, really, really impressive. It so happened as well that it was a very good summer for insects, invertebrates. So when we came to thresh the crop, there was almost as many um, beetles and ladybirds um, going into the bins as there were, <laughs> as there were oats. So it, was, it, was, it was a real turnaround. It kind of really encouraged me forward on, on, along those lines. So in your first year, even just with that one year, and like you say, the animals not having seen that crop for a long time, you had a real sort of experience of bioabundance just from that one activity. That's amazing. I don't know. I've, I've ranted and raved about this for ages, but it's, it is extraordinary. But at the same time, when we got to kind of March time, um, after the crop had been brought in and then fed back out again, you could really notice stuff starting to dissipate again. You could notice like um, interest in the field was diminishing, and because it was just the one field, um, you could you could kind of feel like we'd hit a peak and then we're gradually sinking back down into a trough again. So, um, I was quite keen to get the next next step of the rotation in, which was good, which was going to be turnips. I originally wanted to go straight into turnips, um, but I wanted to do turnips the old-fashioned way, growing them on drills uh, like Swede turnips. Okay. Um, and I couldn't necessarily do that having plowed in um having plowed in plowed in the grass it's then very difficult to then actually drill the crop like actually raise the drills without turning up all the turf that's been buried so I had to then bury the turf the first year and then let it rot and then the next year when it was what it's called I don't know whether it's the same with you but what here around here is called red ground um once everything had rotted out and it was much cleaner soil, then I could go in with a with a with a with a drill plow, and there was almost no transferable equipment from what I'd done with the oats to the turnips. So I then had to go back out and get everything I needed to drill turnips. Um, but I then what was what's what's weird about it? I mean, this sounds like ridiculous and constant, incessant outlay and, and huge capital investment. I got all of the equipment I needed, five items of machinery. All the equipment I needed to sow turnips for less than a hundred pounds at a, at a at a farm sale. Um, so that was a drill plow, a cedar, uh, a scarifier, um, the back hose, and there was something else. Ugh, I can't quite think what else it was, but but it turned out that 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 machinery is almost less valuable than than, than its scrap value, um, and there are still a few old farms that you can find that have still got this kind of kit lying about and provided you willing to 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 hunt about for it there's still that kind of machinery there and i worry too that sometimes with cropping when i'm interested in getting small bits of of cropping to strike a balance between conservation and agriculture i think people are put off by the fear that it's going to be uh, a lot of uh, fine you first of all if you can't get a contractor to do it you're going to have to do it yourself and what kind of outlay do you need in terms of equipment to, to make that happen well from my experience it's not a it's not a huge amount, and once you've sunk in uh, fifteen hundred pounds on, on on a tractor, a lot of the additional equipment is is sort of fifty quid here, sixty quid there. And I think probably if I was working in a situation um, with a few others doing similar stuff, if you pull your resources on that, you're really not really not spending a huge amount. I've been really encouraged this year that some of my neighbours who manage about thirty five forty acres further up the glen quietly came and said, actually, can we borrow some of your turnip kit? And so bit by bit, I like to think that, um, fine, I'm not necessarily creating a revolution in agriculture in Galloway, but but making the machinery available and people knowing where it is. Yeah, of course, like I, I, I'm not growing turnips this year. God, they, they can, they're, they're welcome to welcome to the loan of it. And I like to think, too, that in due course, they'll get machinery that I'd like to use. So in terms of pooling resources, that that does make sense. Yeah, well, it's important that you're preaching cooperation, not just with the conservationists, but with the farming community as well. <laughs> sure. And I know that we've got a, I would have called it a problem, but let's call it an issue with um, demographics in agriculture in, in Scotland. They they say the average age of a farm is 57, 58. Um, what I find really interesting about this approach is that I'm not, in terms of trying to do stuff for conservation, I'm not necessarily doing anything new. I'm not doing anything that's unheard of. And so 
um, a lot of the people, a lot of landowners, a lot of farmers around here see me doing the work I'm doing and they remember doing it themselves 30 years ago. And I find quite often it's frustrating because uh, they'll come and lean on the dike and tell you that you're doing it wrong, but <laughs> you're, you're, you're doing something that isn't alien. And so uh, not only was I did I get a lot of sort of like advice and support and tips on how to actually do it, but but it, it kind of made sense. And actually it started a lot of conversations with local farmers about conservation. And, and even if it was just as much as, well, I remember we used to do this. And yes, I remember there were an awful lot of wee birds then, or I remember there were a lot more hares then than there are now. And actually just that there's, there, there, there's, a, there's an approach towards conservation and agriculture now, which, which there is yeah an approach which which rather likes the idea of things being shiny and new and and and, and taking like a very very fresh um, sort of re retake on, on on agriculture and actually I find it was so much more relatable to do kind of a slightly more old fashioned take and then everybody knows everybody understands what you're doing everybody can see it you bring on a much bigger audience with you if you're doing something that, that that's recognizable or, or that people remember rather than um, sometimes when you see people trying to support the ideas around mob grazing and, and, and rotational grazing. Yeah, that's brilliant. And, and there's going to be some great outcomes from that. But it's it's almost Greek to 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 some of the local farmers who who probably in their 60s and 70s anyway, just scratch their heads and have no idea what you're talking about. Um, I, I don't know, I found good value in yeah doing something that was recognisable. Yeah, and I think there's a, an aspect when, you know, you're talking about conservation and farming, I think there's a an issue where it's important that um, the, the, the good uh, environmental benefits that came from farming and come from current farming practices, if they don't even get recognised to start with, it's very hard for any sort of positive dialogue. I think it can create a lot of um, undue friction if, it, if it's just felt that uh, conservationists are coming in and telling people how to do things differently without valuing the good work that is happening maybe by accident or just by tradition um, I think that can really not help get good relationships and collaboration going in the first place. Sure sure and I think too it's worth restating the fact that um, I'm not necessarily I would never imagine myself being like the start of a big change here but um, at the same time I've, I've, I've made a conscious attempt to bring people along, bring local farmers along with this, um, and 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 fine. What I'm doing is not necessarily the blueprint for what they're now instantly starting to do. Aside from the occasional dribs and drabs and a little bit of turnip fields here and there, but people are people at least understand what I'm trying to do. Um, yeah. they, they 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 can get it, um, and they. I suppose probably I find it always quite interesting when people come. I've had lots of contradictory advice. It's amazing how when you speak to people, uh, they'll one person will tell you white is black and the other will tell you black is white. I've made a point of when I was doing the turnips, uh, I was given two very contradictory pieces of advice from neighbours on either side of my farm. And actually, I did half the field one guy's way and half the field the other guy's way. Um, <laughs> and actually, that stirred up all sorts of controversy. And then as a result, it was quite nice to then feed back and kind of like niggle at them and say, well, there are actually more hares on that side of the field and actually trying to just create a bit of like competitive dialogue. About <laughs> it. It, it, it was, it was, that was fun. And I suppose too, just keeping these issues afloat because there just isn't time. There just isn't space. If you're managing, as I say, with this big dairy country, if you're managing big dairy herds um, and, and getting stuff to have, like trying to beat deadlines, trying to, operate on a big scale here there often isn't just isn't time to think about conservation so to kind of just have this little example sitting in the midst of of, of an otherwise fairly commercial landscape did generate some fun conversations and at least it it keeps the idea alive it keeps the issue alive that's great um and before earlier in the podcast you mentioned your uh, interest slash obsession with curlews and there's yeah. some really nice passages in the book about curlews uh, would you like to share one of them with us my grandfather's world was founded on an obsession with crop rotations. One crop followed another in a steady, dependable sequence, and the lumbering pattern would coax the land into good heart. The people who invented rotations were careful and godly, and they spent their lives working to glean goodness from nature. Farmers drew huge benefit from their system, but wildlife also took a share of the spoils because mixed farming was beautifully balanced. As one crop was cut, another was sown and a third was ripening. Nobody asked the birds to come, but the soil was fit, and feathers rode the constant flux between stubbles and meadows, moorland and ploughland. The bonanza of feed and nutrients extended across glens, parishes, and entire counties, 
Curlews used to be shy moorland birds. They made their home in the hills and rarely came near human beings. When the new rotations came, the land boomed so deeply that they broke ranks and poured down to breed in lush meadows and hayfields across the lowlands. They'd never show such a flair for innovation again, but that leap into farmland binds their story to ours. You can plot their expansion on a map throughout the late Victorian age and the decades which followed. The new birds sounded strange to lowland folk, but soon their songs were swallowed up and adored. Curlews can do that, and it became hard to imagine life without them. That's beautiful, thank you. There's been a lot more attention uh, paid to soil as a living medium in agriculture lately. Do you want to tell us about your work with managing soil invertebrates and soil pH on your farm? Yeah, so the, the work I did with Soil Association gave me a good grounding in, in the value of soil. Around here, as I say earlier, talking about commercial grassland management, there's there's sort of a ramping up of, of, of a little bit of a sort of a put and take um, approach towards um, towards crops and, and, and grassland. Uh, in as much as um, the fields are very heavily doused with slurry and and then topped up with bagged nitrogen fertilizer in in the spring, and actually that's created a very sort of short term um, quick fire sort of approach to, to to soil management. And I was really interested in um, issues around herbal lays and 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 grass being um, able to capture all sorts of minerals, all sorts of um, stuff that normally you'd be adding as supplements to feed cattle. I was really interested about kind of just trying to unlock what was already there. I know there's, I mean, it's, it's an enormous subject. It covers everything from um, carbon sequestration in, in the soil right the way through to, to invertebrates. But I just, I couldn't help but feel curlews were a really good sort of starting point, given that they're a bird that actually digs in the ground to, to, to feed. They're actually eating leather jackets and worms. And, and if those leather jackets and worms aren't there, then it's very difficult to expect curlews to follow. Um, and I think probably having based a lot of conservation work in the past on specifically focused on trying to help the birds that I was interested in. I suppose probably I find it more interesting to look, to kind of ignore the birds that I was interested in and focus instead on the soil and, 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 and more or less trust that if the soil was healthy, um, the birds would follow. So I've taken off, uh, I manage uh, about 10 or 15 acres of grassland, which is which cut for hay. And I've really started to sort of de-escalate ma- the management on that, looking at, did um, some soil samples and um, nutrient samples in the soil in those fields. Um, they had, they when I took them, they'd come out of quite an intensive commercial sort of rotation of management. And they were rather what you'd expect, the sort of high in sort of basic nutrients, high in nitrogen, high in potash, but but lacking in lots of lacking in lots of other minerals, lacking in lots of other um, sort of trace elements. And bit by bit, by trying to de-escalate that management, um, I've cut out um, nitrogen fertilizer. I work a lot more on muck, but muck rather than slurry, a sort of like slow release muck rather than slurry. What's been really encouraging in that is very quickly, well, I say very quickly, within two or three years, um, the sort of what you'd call probably what you'd call the nutrient content in terms of nitrogen content in terms of the the nutrients that you would equate with intensive grassland management have dropped yeah they they really have dropped and actually now i'm getting a lot less productive um a lot less productive sward when it comes to cut for hay um but at the same time i'm getting a much more varied sward so i'm getting plants which bring a lot of different um different characteristics to the table and also, too, I'm quite a big believer, given that I'm um, interested in Galloways, um, Galloways can do well on a very, very high fibre diet. They eat a lot of crap, basically, and um, don't. Um, they could do very well on, on, on very, very rough stuff. By leaving the grass later and letting it go to seed, it's, it's really increased the fibre content of the... Of the well, I do sometimes take a second cut of silage if I can, if it's been a good year. But analysis analysis has gone from when I started high nitrogen content, but very low fiber. So we end up with sort of like sort of slushy, almost sort of creamy silage, um, getting now to sort of much more uh, thatchier, more fibrous kind of stuff. And actually looking at that dynamic from an agricultural perspective, I can I can stomach that because I'm working with um, native breed, slow grown Galloway cattle. It wouldn't suit. Of course, it wouldn't suit me if I was working with um, working with dairy cows. But I think probably from my own perspective, um, the management that I've done while focusing on soil, um, I would like to do more in the way of invertebrate surveys. But focusing particularly on soil, I got so into it and so into 
um, the wildflowers and um, sort of sward diversity uh, that I almost didn't notice. I looked up this spring and realized that I had oyster catchers nesting in fields where they've never nested before. Oh, or wow. maybe haven't nested for 25, 30 years. Um, and so to me, having taken my eye off the ball and having actually not tried, I wasn't specifically trying to conserve waders. I just was looking at the health of the soil. Yeah, in some ways, the faith was the faith was rewarded because, um, yeah, I was starting to get things right and waders just kind of filled, did the legwork on their own. So to me, that's that's encouraging stuff. Uh, waders are great for every reason, but waders are great, particularly because the kind of management that waders like does benefit loads of other things. Um, and particularly, too, if you take that kind of broad brush approach of looking at looking at the soil and starting to fix some of the issues that we've created with soil management, it's great for all sorts of things. And as I say, I got, I've been up all sorts of blind alleys looking at, I've been so interested in wildflowers recently and, and almost giddy with excitement about, about wildflowers recently. I wouldn't necessarily have shown much interest in wildflowers five or six years ago. Um, and so fine. Yeah. I haven't produced any waders in that field that wouldn't otherwise already have been there, but there's a hell of a lot of other stuff. And when you go in on a hot day as yesterday, the day before I was in there, the place was absolutely buzzing with bees. Um, and it's, it's, we've got a hell of an adders on one of the banks leading down to one of the fields. It's, it's, it's difficult when you say you're interested in waders and wader conservation, you then almost sort of judge your success as a wader conservationist on how many waders there are. But as long as I think probably you're working towards waders, there's a lot of goals to win, a lot of goals to score along the way. I think a lot of the time people miss the fact that like there's there's just so much diversity on uh, farms and crofts like the groups of animals that you just mentioned there is incredible. Sure, and and, and I feel it too uh, with a with a couple of pals on on Sky. I feel too with difficult birds like corncrakes. Say you try and get into some of the corncrake schemes and do some really great corncrake stuff, and you're just not quite yet in a corncrake area. Not corncrakes just aren't quite visibly responding you don't necessarily get the pleasure of hearing them but but my god you've done a lot of good stuff which sets the place in good stead um for everything else so i mean you almost do start to treat lapwings as you would cold crakes as you would any sort of priority species uh, you aspire to them but actually even if you don't get them you're still on the right path and i think quite often people's heads go down a bit because they say oh, i've done all this work for lapwings i put in a huge amount of effort and we still haven't got any lapwings you kind of sometimes have to tap them on the shoulder and say look at what you have done though um, there's loads of amazing stuff here and some of the way to graze grassland options in in, for, in the agri-environment scheme um, bits and pieces come up from that which have got nothing to do with waders at all and sometimes you almost think why do they call these schemes way to graze grassland why don't they just call it i don't know it's probably quite obvious now i say it but why not just call it really nicely managed grassland schemes yeah. um, and, I, but... and i think you're right actually i think sometimes the the, the silo effect can be really counterproductive because it's actually the the mosaic of the different habitats that are overlapping and butting against each other that actually does create some of that bioabundance but sometimes you know for scheme rules it's quite like it's easy if you think oh well this is for waders or this is for wildflowers but actually in in life it tends to be a bit more of a mess you know <laughs> absolutely and and then that's going to be a huge challenge for for trying to, to pay farmers for some of this uh, delivery of ecosystem services that's going to be a huge challenge because uh yeah how do you like you can do all the good in the world but if you don't necessarily deliver your pre-designated wader um, population then actually I don't know it becomes rather harder to measure you can do yeah you can do startlingly good stuff and still not satisfy any of the schemes and I think also there's a there's, with corn creeks and sky I think one of the the sort of the heartening messages is that often things that are agriculturally beneficial can also benefit corn creeks. So, you know, certainly um, if the soil becomes uh, too acidic, then it reduces the invertebrates that the young can eat. And we've got a really strong correlation with like areas where people have, uh, you know, have cattle, make silage, and there's a lot of what you would call sort of traditional, you know, crofting activity. That's where the, the corn creeks really um, have the the strongest population so i think sometimes it can be quite difficult and yeah they're strange sometimes appear sometimes don't in certain areas and it's very unclear why in some cases but i think it can be a problematic if we if we think of like oh i'm doing my farming and now i'm doing my conservation because there's just so much intermeshing of the two totally absolutely yeah and and that was a really interesting strand of what i was doing at uh, the work i was doing at soil association um, so much of what's good for the farm is good for the good for the waders and good for the, the wildlife as well. And, and one angle we, we, we took on that was um, 
to do with rush control, rush management. This big bit that I saw, we held an, a soil association, held an event on Sky, and uh, we looked at a very, very densely rushy area. Um, rushes are great for waders, but not like that. I mean, that was that was ridiculous sort of chest high stuff. But a few rushes in a field um, is great. So actually, in terms of trying to bind together grassland improvement and, and, and rush control, uh, is good for the farmer and good for the waders. And then particularly when you think too that um, rush control, or, sorry, rush expansion is often linked to um, sort of declining soil quality and soil getting wet and soil getting acid and weeds coming in um, and so the grass not effectively not being able to outcompete the rushes. If you've got a healthy sward of grass, you, 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 the rushes are going to be on the back foot. And so that, that, that was a really nice message to push because like you, I'm really keen to break out of that system where you write, put down tools. We're not farming this afternoon. We're doing conservation now. I'm really keen that yeah, conservation remains sort of completely part and parcel of, of the job. And that too was why um, I was really keen when we were cropping um, or when I well, continue to crop. Um, I was really keen that the crops served an agricultural purpose and that they weren't, they weren't just sort of left for nature because in a, in a practical sense, it kept in a practical sense, it kind of it made it for me. It made it viable. It made it feel like it wasn't just. So I didn't get any payment. I didn't get any payments for any of this. It made it feel like it was linked to the business. But at the same time, it was really nice to really draw close to the fact. I'm very very keen on my on my cattle. Um, I really liked to be able to look at the birds and look at the wildlife around me and feel like in a in a rather sort of namby pamby kind of difficult to quantify way. It's really nice to feel like they were all part of the same system and not just like operating side by side, but actually completely overlapping and completely knitted in together. That added a that added real. I suppose it's difficult to quantify, but it was it was it was part of the real pleasure of the thing. We're now going to hear another excerpt from Patrick's book. Yeah, with a little bit of a preamble. So a lot of the changes that have happened in Galloway have happened really, really quickly, um, and we've lost a lot of waders. We've lost a lot of wildlife in in a very short period of time. And I suppose probably that made me panic in a way because I felt that we were losing a lot of stuff and, and not and not record not sort of recording it, not really marking the fact that it was gone. So I started to sort of rush about the place like a headless chicken. I was photographing places that were due to go into commercial forestry, trying to look at um, farmhouses which were being sort of abandoned and boarded up. There was a lot of old people um, that sort of my grandfather's generation um, that I went out to go and see. I went to go and interview them. I was just trying to really just trying to catch a lot of this information before it went because um, I don't know, I was aware, not necessarily at the time understanding the value of it, but I was aware that it was all it had all been important stuff and I couldn't quite believe that it, that it wouldn't continue to be important. And I suppose that then has gone on to inform lots of the, lots of the work I'm now doing. Um, and I think probably that's, this is, this is how it was, how it was expressed in the book. Nobody ever thought to write down any of the knowledge you need to farm in the old rotations. Now it's fading away and only survives in living memory. Suddenly I was glad of my sad miscellany of archives and interviews. Dredging back through my notes, I found hints and clues to get me started along the road. This kind of knowledge doesn't like being bottled, and it seemed to gasp with relief when I drew it out and began to make use of it. So, Patrick, you've told us a lot about how much wildlife came from your crop that you grew. What do you think needs to be reassessed and changed so this scene can be more widespread in Scotland? It's really difficult to, to, to answer because, I, particularly here in Galloway, so many of the drivers which effectively disposed of a lot of these old these old ways of farming are, are still are still evident they're still full, effectively we're still working full steam ahead in the opposite direction we're still getting more intensive we're still getting um, more commercial more focused on um, outputs so in some ways it's a huge effectively a huge super tanker heading off in one direction and and, and how to not only slow it down but turn it round and, and go back the way there's very different um compared to to galloway and sky there's some very different patterns of land ownership and very different patterns of land management but at the same time there's so much scope um to do some really good stuff particularly on 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 smaller holdings and i see i suppose i see lots of good stuff happening around here but it's almost it's almost like it's too small so the area that i'm working on um, putting back into cropping and rotations is is it's not even well, it's not even ten acres, and yet that's me probably five seven miles to the nearest person doing anything similar. So I think what I'd really like to see is is some way of kind of linking up the people who are doing this kind of work and making sure that there's connections between them, um, social and and sort of 
actual sort of dialogue connections, but also geographical connections to make sure that habitats in one place link up to link up to others. Um, I suppose probably I return to the point that despite the fact it's easy to get gloomy about conservation in Galloway, when you hear um, silage being cut by the hundreds of tons long into the darkness at nighttime, you quite, it's quite often to feel that you like kind of it's too late we can't do anything and so and I think probably we are too late for birds like curlews and for birds like lapwings in Galloway but I suppose I go back to the fact that I was so incredibly impressed and surprised by what did spring back instantly as soon as I changed as soon as I changed gear as soon as I changed direction um things just completely altered I, I I've spoken to to bird watching pals about um our yellowhammers and our um linnets where, where did where did they come from how did they had, had they been somewhere else and suddenly came here or had they just been here under the radar i think even in a place that feels like there's that doesn't have an awful lot going for it as large pieces of galloway don't in terms of conservation there's still a lot of hope i i find it i just i just find it really hard so much of what i've done in some ways i really i find it really important to to be relatable in what i'm trying to do which is why i've used a lot of that old machinery and make sure that i'm I'm visible that people understand what I'm trying to do. At the same time, this has cost me an absolute fortune, um, and none, nothing of what I've done has been eligible for subsidy or support. So it's all come out of my pocket. And actually, unless you were, yeah, unless you were similarly interested and excited by conservation, it's really not easy to see why you would. And that's why I go back to again the fact that a lot of the existing grant schemes don't support, or don't don't fully support the kind of work that I wanted to do. I don't get any payment for any of this, partly because I didn't I didn't necessarily want to be managed. I rather wanted to feel my own way. And as soon as you are being supported financially, you you, yeah, you lose a little bit of control over what you're doing. You have to do it along certain guidelines. Where a big part of me wanted to do it completely under my own steam and, and, and find my way forward by trial and error. But the whole system really needs to recognise almost two gears in terms of... Um, in terms of in terms of farming and, and and find a way on one hand to support the people who are ramping up and really actually driving forward this agricultural economy in in, in places and also recognizing that there is another approach um, and I suppose probably I've in lots of ways fallen between those two um, fallen between those two approaches so actually that's why I come back to the fact that a lot of the stuff that I'm interested in doing isn't even recognized and it's an obstacle to working with other people who want to do similar stuff they find it the existing system doesn't quite know what to make of them, doesn't quite know how to support them. And I think probably there is consensus or increasing consensus. A lot of this stuff is really good. How do you create customized schemes? How do you create sort of like uh, bespoke support for people who are trying to do stuff? Quite often, like uh, I would be really interested to see how well stuff that I've done in Galloway worked in Sky and vice versa. And I think probably we overlook the fact, we assume always that Scotland's just a small country, we overlook the fact that it's hugely different from place to place. And actually what works in one place probably almost certainly won't work in another place. It feels too like the systems, the grant systems, the support systems are almost too clunky to accommodate that. If I went into an option um, for an X option here, I would be using the same or many of the same um, guidance and, and, and metrics for monitoring as, as you would on Sky. And that, that's, that's crazy. Yeah, no, I, and there is so much, you know, even just like at the most basic when spring arrives varies so much. Yeah, absolutely. And when I said to, when I was on Sky, I said that, uh, and I said it too when I was in Laird in Sutherland, I said that uh, farmers around here take the first cut of silage maybe last week in April and people were just absolutely staggered, just couldn't, couldn't believe it. So there's no, I would love to see more sort of regional autonomy and actually where I have seen a really good system for this kind of stuff is on the Isle of Man, where it's and it's particularly to do with uplands and moorland management on the Isle of Man. As a really good guy works in the government the government office of the Isle of Man, and because it's a small-ish area, and he was born and brought up on the Isle of Man, he knows all the farmers and all the landowners in the area. He goes for a pint with them. He knows all the tensions, all the politics, all the everything that comes up between a small rural community, and yet he's able to kind of steer projects through simply by having that local knowledge he's got sufficient leeway that he can access resources to support particular projects stuff that farmers want to do and fine that's a model that works really well on a small self-contained really obviously delineated geographical area but i would love to see it's again it's just money it's just it's it's how do you how do you fund 
really like really localized, really focused conservation advisors just to, to make sure that everybody's pushing in the same direction. So I don't know, I think probably your your question was how do we take this forward or how do we learn some lessons from this? I think at the moment we're in a system where there's a there's there's a lot of obstacles and unless you want to go out on a limb and expose yourself financially as 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 I have, you it's difficult. It's really hard. And on that same topic of sort of having to go back out on a limb, moving away from your own farm, with working for waders, you've been working with a hub of farmers in Lanarkshire who've been considering starting cropping again. So what barriers have they faced? It's a different part of the country, uh, different systems, but uh, what's it been their experience? Um, well, what's great about them is that, so this is the Clyde Valley Wader Initiative. What's great about them is that they are, as we were talking about earlier, um, of a similar vintage. They they remember at first hand um, the huge environmental uh, conservation benefits of, of, of cropping. So they're driving this. They want to do this, but at the same time appreciate, as I do, that contractors don't necessarily want this kind of work and actually can't, quite often can't do this kind of work. So they're looking at getting machinery. They're looking at getting, they had looked at getting um, government support to do effectively like a trial or a pilot for cropping. But all this is, it, do, it doesn't fit. It doesn't fit the system. We, we, we spent 30 years abandoning that kind of farming. So now it's quite difficult just to click your fingers and restore it. Yeah, it's a different landscape. They've actually got an awful lot more waders uh, in the Clyde Valleys. It's, you'd, you'd almost call it sort of Hebridean quantities of, of, of waders there. It's, it's ridiculous to go when I was there in April, just before, you know, the end of March, just before the lockdown. Um, and it's a it's a din. It was absolutely fantastic. And farmers there really appreciating what they had. But at the same time, I suppose probably it's easy sometimes for people not to take waders seriously. And so uh, if you've got lots of waders, that's one of the frustrations of working with working for waders is that um, the only people we hear from are the people who've lost all their waders. And actually the people who um, have got a healthy population and people who we should be sort of reinforcing and studying and examining and paying real attention to places where waders are doing really well um, they're quite often like, well, we've got tons of waders. I can't see what the problem is. And actually, it's quite interesting. Quite often, you go and speak to people, and they they almost say, well, why why are you? I mean, why are you bothered about curlews? Curlews are everywhere, and and <laughs> it's difficult then to then try and explain the fact that they're really lucky. And actually, look at what's happened elsewhere in the country. Don't rest on your laurels. You you too could lose them. We could all lose them. So I think probably there's a whole mixture of challenges in Lanarkshire and and Clyde Valley. Um, and actually, when you look at why it is a good place for waders, it's to some extent it's to do with uh, moorland management. So there's some big grouse moors up around there where um, there's gamekeepers working on the hill and in the low ground, which just helps things forward a little bit in terms of predator control. There's sort of an active interest in a way that, I don't know, it feels sometimes like waders reach a density where they they almost, people don't see them anymore. And once they've fallen off the radar, it's very difficult, very difficult to get them up and running again. So I'm probably when I look at wader conservation projects, I'm always kind of drawn to projects where waders are kind of at a tipping point while they're still important, but before people have lost interest. Because in Galloway, I speak to lots of people in Galloway about waders. And on one hand, there's this kind of just flat denial that there's anything wrong. Um, so when I got really excited about my oyster catch nests in the hayfield, I told my neighbor and he said, well, do you want to see why you're getting excited about that? Oyster catch nest everywhere. And then I had to say, well, when was the last time on then? When was the last time you saw one? And he, oh, hell, right, okay. And he scratched yeah. his head and towed the ground. And it was 15 years since he'd last seen one. You'd think a noisy, sort of uh, visible, iconic bird like an oyster catcher, people would notice. But people people don't notice um, that they're going. And so you, you balance that kind of just not really not really seeing the decline against the other side of it, which is, well, they've all gone, so why are we bothering? Um and that's the that's kind of like the counter argument. I wanted to do a wader conservation project in Galloway and really like formally stitch together what I'm doing with other people. And pretty much resoundingly, there was a, well, don't bother. It's the horse is bolted. It's, it's finished. And when I was talking about curlews, uh, I went to meet one big landowner who I felt had a strategically very important piece of land. I said, look, is there any way we can get in here and look at your curlews and stuff? And he said, well, we haven't had curlews breeding on here for 15 years. You're wasting your time. I suppose probably my big message traveling across Scotland and talking about waders and getting excited about waders is is do take it seriously. It, 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 we do have to take this seriously. This is not something that, we're, for a start, we're against the clock. And actually, a lot of places in five years' time, we will be there will be large parts of Scotland where waders will just simply won't be there. Five, ten years' time, we will have lost. We're in the final dregs now and collapse when it happens, happens so quickly. 
So you sort of you quite often see it with with um, wader populations. They slowly taper and they go down and slowly taper a little bit more and go down. And it's just so you'd hardly notice it. And then one year you turn around and they've gone. And I think a lot of places now are just on the cusp of that moment. And they're incredibly hard, if not impossible, to get back once they have gone. So I suppose, yeah, that's uh, come, keep coming back to that idea that don't take, if you've got waders breeding on your ground, they are worth their weight because they can't be replaced before you know it, they can be gone in no time. So I'm really encouraged by the project in Lanarkshire, uh, Clyde, Wader, Clyde Valley Wader Initiative, <clears throat> because they are taking it seriously. Um, they're, they're excited and they're driven and they're taking it forward, but also they've got scope to do some real good. If you saw similar levels of enthusiasm coming out of, uh, say, parts of the Scottish borders or parts of Fife where, where waders aren't doing very well, you would say, oh, that's great, guys, but uh, the chances of you being able to do anything specifically for waders, yeah, are just withering on the vine at the moment. No, so the message is that if you feel that you've got a farm or a croft with a healthy uh, population of waders or in a township with a healthy population of waders, you should be pleased. And it's also important to maybe make contact with groups like Working for Waders because just because you think it's kind of commonplace, that's not the national story. No, ab absolutely. And, and, and that, that level of kind of, oh, well, they've always been here, they'll always be here kind of approach i think that's been that's played a large part in in getting us to where we are today and yeah of course you should be very lucky and as you should consider yourself very lucky but as as wader numbers decrease they are designed quite a quite a few of the species are designed to breed better when there's more of them so when you've only got one pair of lapwings their chances of success aren't great because they're designed to breed in bigger sort of almost colonies and so we'll say when a predator comes when you've got if you're a fox and you've got 30 lapwings all complaining and attacking you you're likely to go and try somewhere else whereas if you've only got one pair um yeah. that's a much less impressive sort of deterrent to a fox so in some ways if you've only got one pair uh yeah you're in a lot weaker position than you would be if you had 15 20 pairs but at the same time you've got one pair which looking in from other parts of scotland you're like oh god i give my give my arm and a leg to have one pair so even if you've got very little, it's still the difference between having very few and having none is absolutely enormous. Um, so even if you're seeing um, big declines and it feels like things are things are things are on the way out, um, as long as you've still got something, you're 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 streets ahead of, of other parts of Scotland. Excellent. Well, that's a, an encouraging note to to end on. Um, I'd like to thank you very much for joining me today and sharing some of your experiences that you've so beautifully captured in your book, Native. And we look forward to the next podcast where we'll be discussing hill cattle. Thank you very much. Brilliant. Excellent. Thank you. The Scottish Farming Advisory Service provides a telephone advice line which you can call for free advice. The number is 0300 323 0161. Visit the FAS website at www.fas.scot to find out about free events near you.